Welcome to OECD's Top Class Podcast. I'm Clara Young, and I work in the OECD Directorate for Education and Skills. Today, we're going to talk about the future of education. Not just one future, but four different imagined future scenarios for education. And they are really quite different. I have with me today, Carrie Facer, who is Professor of Educational and Social Futures at the University of Bristol in the UK, and Tracy Burns, who is Senior Analyst in the OECD Center for Educational Research and Innovation. Tracy is also the co-author of a new report, Back to the Future of Education, Four OECD Scenarios for Schooling. So hello, Carrie, and hello, Tracy. Hello. Hi, Clara. I think um, for my first question, I'm just going to begin with you, Tracy. You and your team put together four different scenarios of what schools and learning and teaching can change into in the near future. But these aren't predictions, right? They're scenarios. What's the difference? Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a, a great question. And one of the places we start is by saying that when we think about the future, we often look to the past to try and understand the future and actually here in the Education Directorate, we have a long-standing stream of work that does precisely that. It looks at trends outside of education that could have an impact on the future of education. But looking at trends means looking inherently at what's already happened. And so one of the reasons for this new publication is to, is to look beyond that, to understand that we need to actually look at a set of what might possibly happen without being bound by the past. And so scenarios are defined and, and structured to be a set of alternate futures, each in the form of a snapshot or a story that gives an image of one possible future. It's not a prediction. It doesn't make any recommendations. And they are deliberately and intentionally fictional. And the goal is, and they're constructed for, the purpose of learning and taking action in the present. Okay. Now, before we get in, into the four different imagined futures of education, Carrie, are there any current prevailing assumptions about the future, both in education and, and more generally outside of education? Yes, Claire, there, there really are. And I think, I think the prevailing assumption is that the world will continue pretty much as it is at the moment. So <laughs> the prevailing assumption is that business as usual will carry on. Um, the prevailing assumption is that the past and the present are a good guide to what's going to happen, and that not much is going to change either substantially for the worst or for the better. Um, so that's kind of the dominant worldview is basically a business as usual worldview. And it's, it's also the dominant worldview um, in education. We have this idea that education is a place for preparing young people for business as usual, in particular, the idea of preparation for the economy, as though that's going to carry on in exactly the same way as it has been. And there's all sorts of things that are missed as a result of that. The possibility of radically different futures, the possibility of significant changes in the way in which the world works. So, yeah, I'd say the, uh, the prevailing assumption is that not a huge amount is going to change. Tracy, let's get into the four scenarios. Could you lay them out for us? Sure. So the first one is called Schooling Extended. And this is the prevailing assumption that not much will change. It's actually, you know, sort of the status quo extended, uh, where participation in formal education continues to expand and more international collaboration and technological advances support more individual learning 
But the structures and the processes of schooling remain pretty much as we know them. That's complemented by three other scenarios. The second one is education outsourced, where we see traditional schooling systems break down and society becomes much more directly involved in educating its citizens, primarily through private arrangements, so the role of the market force. Um, and here, digital technology is a key driver. The third scenario is schools as learning hubs, where schools remain, but diversity and experimentation have now become the norm. So the school walls have now opened, schools are connected to the communities, and there are sort of ever-changing forms of learning, civic engagement, and social innovation. So the building is still there, but the relationships are much more flexible and porous. And the fourth scenario is sort of the you know, the, the, the dramatic, the most dramatically different scenario, which is called learn as you go. Uh, and this is where, you know, schools no longer exist. Education takes place everywhere at any time. And the distinctions between formal and informal learning are no longer valid. Uh, and this is, in fact, driven by di digital technology. Uh, the description of the scenario says society turns itself entirely to the power of the machine. Now, Carrie, you mentioned just before that the prevailing idea right now is that the future is not going to be too different from what we have now. So that that speaks to me of scenario one. What's your take on that? Yes. I mean, I think I should probably finesse what I've just said. And I think the, the prevailing assumption is that everything will carry on as business as usual, or we're going to have a massive apocalypse, either brought about by kind of artificial intelligence or climate crisis. And the latter is significantly more likely, I will say that, than the former. So, so we sort of sit in this kind of binary world of everything is going to carry on as normal, or everything's going to be a total disaster and I don't really want to think about it. So I'll spend a lot of time and energy trying to suppress the things that I'm worried about and keep pretending, keep putting a lot of effort into things being business as usual. And I think the critical problem with that is that it gets us locked in, in, in our way of thinking to, to, to very simplistic thinking about the future. And, and the reality is we don't know what the future is going to bring. That's really not complicated. We, we, we have no idea. But if we can do some work to educate our imaginations, to be more fluent and more flexible in our ideas of what the future might be, then that can be incredibly helpful, mainly because it allows us to see what the possibilities are in the present, all right? So for me, the reason we do futures work is not to get good at prediction. It's about opening up possibilities. It's about opening up spaces, alternatives, openings that might allow us to create, frankly, better worlds. So that, for me, is my interest in all of this. It really is about how we can create better sorts of futures. Tracy, you and your team worked on these scenarios before the COVID-19 pandemic. That has been a major factor, I would think. Yeah, well, I mean, I can tell you the biggest change is that we used to sort of have to try and explain why you might want to think about the future. Right? I mean, not that, actually, because everybody's always concerned about the future. But there was always this sort of future we want, and everybody was on board for how you can make that future happen. And the biggest change, frankly, is that we used to spend time saying exactly what Carrie's just said, that the future is unknowable, that we don't necessarily control it, that we have to actually be prepared and sort of ready for what comes. And COVID, in fact, was a masterclass in that. We were immediately you know, humbled and reminded that, in fact, despite all of our best laid plans and all of our efforts, we were caught completely unaware. We did not see this coming and we had to quickly scramble to try and deal with it. And so 
when I think of the scenario, it's sort of more granularly, you know, would I change anything in our analysis now based on COVID? Very little, I would say, because, you know, digitalization, we saw a huge surge of that um, in, as a response to sort of going online when schools closed. That's present in all the scenarios. And it is, you know, it is likely to be more sort of highlighted in our day to day. But at the same time, the other thing we really saw, particularly as school closures stayed and, and endured, was that we were really reminded of the social power of schools, sort of the physicality of humans was just really underlined. And I think that that was a good lesson as well for those people who were very committed to thinking about it just an entirely digital future, that, you know, we actually are very social beings. And there's something very fundamental about the face-to-face institutional aspect of education that we aren't ready to give up quite so easily. So on the whole, no, I don't think much of the scenarios actually changed, although how they may play out might differ. The big thing here and the big story that sort of emerges from COVID is the really, you know, the the clarion call of paying attention to inequality. This isn't new. This has been something that's been a concern. But what COVID has done is it has shone a light on the cracks in our system and reminded us that we need to take action and we need to act to sort of address these issues now. And that, I think, is one of the main sort of gifts that we will receive from this difficult experience. That's a very good point. That makes me think that with the the inequities that everybody's seen with remote schooling and during the school closures, that would give us pause when we think about the second scenario of education being outsourced, increasingly privatized, and where the government takes more of a backseat role. Do we have any thoughts about that on inequity and of personalized learning and going more digital? I think there are things that we can say about inequalities and digital technologies. There are that um, both COVID has taught us, but also the last 40 years of education technology has taught us, which is that the introduction of new technologies tends to reinforce and reproduce inequalities rather than working against them, unless you've got significant effort to redress that that balance okay so and this is why thinking about futures gets really interesting because while the future is uncertain and open and there are all sorts of possibilities there are also certain tendencies that we can predict which is that significant disruptions are likely to hit the most vulnerable first all right that that people are differently placed to respond to challenge and crisis so when we're thinking about futures again there is a risk in this language of kind of radical uncertainty, because it suggests that it means we don't know anything. And there are some things we can know, and we can know that if we want to ensure that these changes are not going to cause significant harm for the most vulnerable, we need to put resources in place early, and we need to put resources in place fast, and we need to think about the impacts on low-income groups. And so that really gets to the critical issue for me when we do this sort of futures work is that balance between the futures we want and the futures that we and the futures that may emerge all right so you've got this relationship between a normative direction what's the world that we want to create alongside the sorts of futures that we have no control over all right so is that relationship between the world that we want to build and the world that is going to be being built around us over which we have no control and we have to balance those two things it's not simply an imaginative free space nor is it a world of prediction but nor can we believe that the world will just be what we want it to be we need to look at the balance between all of these different things values and what may emerge in future 
Carrie, do you think that education systems pay enough attention to trends in society and how they might impact schooling in the long run? So this is a really interesting question because my general feeling is that education has its own purpose that isn't about following trends, all right? So education, that what is the job of education? The job of education is, in my view, to build the capacity for people to imagine and create futures that we cannot predict now, all right? Or more specifically, in Hannah Arendt's term, the job of education is to create opportunities for teachers and students to come together to renew their common world. Now, at that point, the job of education isn't just to see all the trends that are going on and to adapt to it. The job of education is to create a space where you can interrogate those trends. You can say, well, what matters in this? What are the implications of this? How might we respond to them? Okay, so it's not this idea of education following behind a changing world and trying to keep up. It's education being a space for critical examination, potentially a space for a kind of counter perspective on what's going on. That is not to say that schools can just imagine that the world carries on regardless of them and that they should keep doing things in the same way forever and ever and ever. But it is a sort of critical dialogue with the world that I think we want to see in terms of the relationship between schools and society. Tracy, you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to add to this, actually. I think one of the other things, and and this is something we don't necessarily see talked about that much, at least in OECD circles. I know that uh, sort of a particular group, but schools also have major other roles around care for children, particularly younger children, and socialization. So building identity. Who am I? Who is my group? What does citizenship mean? Those are the kinds of sort of less obvious elements of education, but which are actually sort of the glue that holds it together. And some of the unspoken objectives of education systems. And one of the reasons why when we do think of sort of the impact of COVID or the potential for, um, you know, the variety of different challenges for education authorities, if we play through the different scenarios, we see this coming through loud and clear because many of them don't include that element. They're thinking about labor force or they're thinking about skills. And they're forgetting a little bit about the social element and the being, the person element. And that's actually a really fundamental aspect of education. Which is also why thinking about futures in education is really important, because too often the sorts of futures thinking that dominates education is this question, well, what's the labour market going to need? Okay, which is a really narrow question to drive educational purpose. Education's role is much broader than preparation simply for employment. So, you know, we only have to look around us and think about the futures that the 21st century are bringing us. They're bringing us futures that bring sort of really profound challenges in terms of climate change, biodiversity loss, massive social inequalities, um, really profound problems in terms of political engagement, what's happening to democracy, and so on and so forth. Now, under those conditions, if all education leaders frame educational purpose around is a, is a future that is about work, then they're going to completely miss this question of the relationship of education to creating viable, sustainable futures that are much more equal and much more capable of creating a better life for people. So this is this is why thinking about futures really matters, because the, the sorts of frames that we use to structure our assumptions about what education's purpose should be have a massive impact back on the curriculum, on schooling, on the sorts of choices that young people have every day in the classroom. 
Carrie, with these four different scenarios, are there a few issues in general that bind them all that education systems can prepare for now? I mean, I think the thing that the scenarios are trying to do that is really interesting is asking the question, well, where does learning happen? That to me is you know, a really fundamental question. What's the relationship between home knowledge, school knowledge, the knowledge in communities? And at the moment, it's framed a lot around digital technologies. But it's a broader question than that. It's not just the digital, it's the broad question about what's the sort of learning that we need. So that, to me, is, is the thread that binds them. And I think it's an open question. In relation to education's relationship to the future in terms of preparation, I actually don't think the job of education is to prepare people for particular futures. I think that's highly risky. We don't know what the future is going to be. So what we need to do is to pluralise, to create education systems that value each child for their huge talents that each one of them will bring, for their differences, for the different sorts of knowledge that they might have. And out of that, we'll be able to create the sort of rich diversity that means whatever the future is, We've got a vague chance of having people able to respond to it, right? There's nothing more silly than creating an educational monoculture that is oriented towards one particular future. Because if that future doesn't come to pass, we are frankly stuffed. For me, the issue in relation education to the future isn't one of preparation. It's about nurturing all the rich diversity that we have amongst our young people so that they can begin to create the sorts of futures that they will want to see. I'm going to end the podcast with this question, and it's to either of you or both of you, is is there a scenario that may not be presented um, in this report that is really something we know we do not want in the future for education? Does anything jump to mind? I think we've been saying it, right? I mean, I mean we don't want massive inequality and sort of people left on the side and, and children not being able to fulfill their potential and this is sort of the worst case scenario. Um, and that's present in all the scenarios. Each scenario has a flip side. It has this sort of potential strength that goes with it, and it has the potential negative. And so one of the questions we have to ask ourselves, of course, is sort of how do we want to deal with some of the tensions in our education systems? Um, the book itself goes through seven tensions, you know, standard ones when you're using these scenarios, because at the end of the day, these are tools. They don't provide answers. It's just a, it's it helps you think through some of the issues to prepare for your own system and your own context. You use it in the way you like, and the tensions are there to say, okay, if we want to apply this in our system, what are some of the hard choices we need to make? Just as a function of who we are and who our education system is, and I'll I'll just give you one example. It's the sort of tension that you know which has come up a lot, and it seems sort of straightforward on the face of it, which is this tension between the virtual and face to face. You know, some things are better done virtually, some things are better done face to face. And what is the balance between those two? Different systems will have different answers. Different tasks will have different answers. Different expectations. But there's really serious questions also about the functioning of the education system in terms of, for example, teacher effectiveness. You know, where we choose to place ourselves on that balance will have a deep impact on how you prepare teachers to teach and to support their role as teachers. And also the future of teaching, by the way, because it turns it has an impact on how much we expect and what we expect teachers to do. And then the other one is really about relationships, because when we think about education, it's one of the ways we bring people together. 
and students have a chance to encounter and interact with people who are very different from themselves. And so if we imagine a world where we've sort of given more emphasis to kind of the way people get have a lot more personal choice, they can choose all of their interactions, for example. By definition, we, we will normally choose to be with people who are like us. I mean, that's just who humans are. It's easier, it's nice, you feel comfortable. And I think personally that that would be a great pity. Because one of the things that school really forces you to do, whether you want it or not, is to meet people who are really quite different than you. And you learn so much through those interactions. And so that's just an example of one of the tensions. You would have a discussion about it when you use these scenarios. You know, how do we think about this? How do we want to relate this to the goals and functions of schooling, etc.? But it's important to consider and keep that in mind. I think that that's great. And um, I would con- I would concur with that. And I'm trying to think about how we think about the future in education. I often use Jim Data's framework of four futures to think with. So he invites us to think of the possibilities of collapse. So a radical breakdown of everything that we're familiar with, of transformation, the possibility that things might evolve into a completely different sort of world. Business as usual, things might carry on and what he calls sort of managed constraints. So we tighten our belts and we sort of just about get by. And my experience is as each of us sit in in one of those categories kind of more easily than others. Some of us find it easier to imagine a future of kind of radical collapse, others a future of radical transformation. But the thing is, is that all of these ideas of the future are useful. And so my hunch is, is that schools, education settings need to be thinking for all of them, okay? What was your education look like if we face a situation come 2050, of radical disruption. What about if we face a situation where we've got cheaper than, you know, incredibly cheap energy and radical transformation in terms of technologies, all right? Both of these are possible. So the trick is really to use our imagination and to think about, well, what really matters in any of those contexts? And for educators, to me, the thing that really matters is the question, what does it mean to be human? What is it when, what sorts of humans are we creating? What are our responsibilities? What are our relationships with each other? And for me, humans that can survive the future, whatever it brings, are gonna have curiosity. They're gonna be able to think about what might be happening, you know, what, what might be emerging. They're gonna have imagination. They're going to be able to build relationships and friendships because we know that one of the ways in which we survive disruption is precisely through relationships. And they're also going to understand the tools that they need to make change happen. So how do you affect change in many, many different levels? And I think if we've got those sorts of capabilities, then we won't be able to tell young people the sorts of futures that they should be creating. We won't be able to predict for them what they're going to be. But we will have equipped them with the tools to be able to, for themselves, create the futures that are appropriate for them in the worlds and the conditions that they are confronting at their time, which will be different from the world that we're living in. I think this conversation has got us started thinking about what kind of education future we're headed for and how we can influence them and prepare ourselves with these scenarios. Thanks very much, Carrie Facer and Tracy Burns. I'm Clara Young. For more about what we've been talking about, have a look at Back to the Future of Education, four OECD scenarios for schooling. And to keep up to date on education issues at the OECD, have a look at our Twitter page. Our Twitter handle is at OECD EDU skills. <laughs>